Welcome in. Late Kick is live. It is Thursday night. It is July 2nd, the year of our Lord, 2020. It is a holiday weekend. Yours truly is about to wrap the show up in the next somewhere between 30 minutes and two hours and then take myself from Nashville right down to Columbus, Georgia. So it's going to be a nice long night of driving on either I-65 or 24, 85, 75. I flip a coin. I mean, when we leave the studio, it's just as quick to go through Alabama as Georgia. So I digress. We've got... uh, as mentioned in the chat, jam-packed show tonight. We are going to um, do our little draft. It's not so little. It's actually a big draft, but we like to draft our games of the year. And what we like to do is we like to just take a look across the landscape of college football, nationally, of course, not just regionally. And we look at the weeks and how they shake out. Of course, you can only go to one game a week. And we draft our five or six biggest games of the year, the ones that if you couldn't go to any other game, you couldn't watch any other game, these are the ones that we want to watch. We're also going to do our mood tracking series. We're going to start this tonight. We're going to do it again Sunday night. We're going to do it over the next several shows. And we go basically across a few divisions. Like tonight, we're going to do the SEC West. Sunday night, we're going to do the SEC East. And what this is meant to do is it's meant to not necessarily grab the headlines because headlines are just written to echo the vocal minority of your fan base on the pessimistic side and the optimistic side. But the silent majority are the 80% that just kind of, you know, they live their lives and they wait for the season to show up. Those are the people who represent the real pulse of your fan base. So if you're in touch with those people, like we like to believe that we are here, then we can give you a lot better gauge on what, let's say, for example, the Texas A&M fan base is thinking, today notwithstanding, than necessarily someone who works in like Lincoln, Nebraska, who just watches Texas A&M from a distance. So we're going to do that tonight. We're going to talk about uh, an email I got that I touched briefly on in yesterday's Late Kick Extra podcast, available for download, Late Kick with Josh Pate in any podcast feed that you subscribe to. And it was asking me if I thought Ohio State had been overrated over the past 15 to 20 years. I said, no, but... I thought I needed to give a better explanation than I did on the podcast. So I'll do that tonight. And then we're going to give you some Elite 11 takeaways that was held right down the road here, uh, just south of Nashville, I guess that's southeast in uh, Murfreesboro. And uh, I got some takes on that, especially for some big names going to some big programs and some very welcoming reviews that I read from some of our guys in-house here about two names, really three names in particular that I'm going to touch on in this show. So let's get to it. All right, you can think right along with me here. We're going games of the year. We're drafting these things. I'm going to give you in order the games that I will pick. If I can only go to these games, I've got one, two, three, four, five, six of them. And I'm going to start in week two. And I'm going down to Baton Rouge because I love it down there. And they're very welcoming down there. And there's a big game down there in week two. It's Texas at LSU. You remember this one last year? This was fun for me last year. I didn't get to go to Austin, but LSU played at Austin last year. This is the return trip of second leg of a home and home. And um, there was a lot of talk in the offseason. LSU's offense is going to be this or not going to be this. They're going to be that, not going to be that. And it was really the Texas game that validated in a lot of other people's minds what some of us had thought Texas or LSU rather was going to be all along in the offseason. And granted, Texas didn't put a top five defensive unit on the field last year, but I mean, it's an elite program and that place was on fire and it was an early season kind of litmus test for both, but especially for Joe Burrow and LSU. Well, now you return and they've got a national championship under their belt now, but now there's a whole lot of spotlight on both programs, but I'm thinking about it from the Texas point of view. The Texas point of view is 
Now we're sitting here with the experience at quarterback and we're going on the road and most people will paint us as underdogs in this game. And if you want to have some seismic early season shift in at least the perspective, at least the idea about what Texas football is, well, that would be a very, very good win to get under your belt. Also, atmosphere is going to be out of this world insane at that game. It, just the reading, you know, Colin showing you Tom Herman on the B-roll here, if you're watching on the YouTube channel, just thinking about the stories and the stories and the stories that you could tell about Ed Orgeron and Tom Herman. And you can mix some Jimbo Fisher in there. Uh, Ross Dellinger's done really good writing on that whole kind of, and on the outside, it seemed like a fiasco, but it seems like it was a little bit more well-orchestrated, the closer inside of LSU you got. And just reading and remembering about how all that stuff went down is, mm, college football is great. Then the very next week, we're going to Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Georgia at Alabama. If you're from where I'm from, if you're from the South, I'm from West Central Georgia. So there was always this little triangle between Auburn and Athens and Tuscaloosa, and those were the three major... Pro it, granted, it's not a perfect triangle, but you understand what I'm saying. Those were the three programs when I worked down in Columbus that I covered the most. And Georgia and Alabama don't play regularly. So when they met in a national championship game, you can imagine what it was like down there. Very next year, SEC championship game. And now, yep, it's that time of century. They're going to play in the regular season. And here we go. It's another shot for Kirby Smart. It's the first shot since the Iron Bowl, really, and then the game against Michigan for us to see Mac Jones. That's who we assume is going to start. I talked to someone pretty dialed in at Alabama yesterday about this, and as good as Bryce Young is, Mac Jones is going to start at quarterback for Alabama. I don't think that's breaking news, but fully expect Mac Jones to be starting at quarterback for Alabama in this game. Uh, that's not because Bryce Young is not something. That's because Mac Jones is something. Well, you know what else is something? The Georgia defense. And so it's going to be a really, really good test. And it also lets us see, albeit early season sample size, it lets us see where that Georgia quarterback situation is. I assume we have Jamie Newman starting. We get to see Todd Munkin. We don't necessarily have the usual hornet's nest that you'd be walking into in all likelihood playing a game on the road because, I mean, that's not what road football looks like it's going to be this year. Hope I'm wrong, but that's not what road football looks like it's going to be this year. But it's just the first real test. And chances are, regardless of how this one turns out, chances are you're walking away saying, Ooh, we very well could see these same two teams again down the road in Atlanta. But man, anytime you can get those two locking up regular season, that is a treat to watch. Then I want to go to week five. I talked about this game. Colin, I want to say it was last week we talked about this game. Maybe if you're on the West Coast, maybe if you're in the South, it's a little bit off your radar. But Notre Dame versus Wisconsin. This is not at Wisconsin. It's not a true road game. I mean, I guess you could count it as that. But this game is tentatively scheduled to be played in Lambeau Field. And this is a week five matchup. It's one of two major hurdles for Notre Dame. The other one, of course, being against Clemson later in the year. But I look very much forward to this one because stylistically, you play these cats from Wisconsin and then you play a little bit later in the year Clemson. Different styles, obviously. This one, I mean, you could have frozen yourself in time in 1987 and woken up in 2020 and the style of play with a few bells and whistles here and there added in. The style of play that you'll get from this game would be right at home in 1987. I personally love that. I, I think that there is potentially a lot of beauty in 16 to 13 outcomes. So that one's going to be smash mouth. It's going to be great. That for Wisconsin, by the way, is the week after Wisconsin goes to Michigan. So consider what we have there. 
I always love seeing someone go on the road, just play a big game in general, and then have another one, another losable game the next week. Because for Wisconsin, I wouldn't think most people are going to expect them to beat Michigan. They'll expect to beat them, and it'll be very competitive. That'll be a single-digit point spread either way. But if they come out of that thing with a win, there you go. Wisconsin's on the national radar. Now, those of us who are pretty dialed into the game, Wisconsin's already on our radar. But those who are just casual observers, they're not thinking about Paul Chris. They're not thinking about Wisconsin. I mean, they're not thinking about, uh, as we call him, Jack Doan, former WWF official. In real life, his parents call him Jack Cohn. They're not thinking about him, Graham Mertz, whoever starts a quarterback there. Uh, They're thinking about the big boys. Well, if Wisconsin goes into Michigan and makes a statement, and then they're playing Notre Dame the very next week in Lambeau Field, national TV, all the trimmings, I mean, that's a, that's a one-two shot for Wisconsin there to really establish themselves. And of course, if Notre Dame wins that game, that is the first of two major hurdles. Now, they've got other losable games, but two major hurdles that they'll have. And then it'll be time about a month later for them to play against Clemson. More on that game in a second. All right, our third game. This is week eight. Man, I wish we could have a full house for this one. Ohio State at Penn State. I don't know that there are very many games even including the ones that we're listing here, that I would choose to go to over this one. You know who I'm thinking about. Ironically, everyone's going to talk about Justin Fields, rightfully so. And a lot of people are going to talk about Micah Parsons, too. Let's let's not shortchange him, but I'm thinking about Micah Parsons. You know, when I think about these kinds of games, Micah Parsons is a linebacker, of course, for um, Penn State. He is a transcendent-type talent. This is the kind of game, potentially, that... You could talk about 10 years from now with him. It's the kind of game with a player of his caliber, there aren't many of them, that he could take over. So I just, if you try and envision ways that games could play out and it's the kind of game he just takes over, that'd be pretty incredible to watch. But also, we get to see Penn State's offense and Kurt Scirocco in his first year as offensive coordinator, but week eight of his first year. You know, this isn't like when Michigan plays Washington week one, and you know no one really knows what to expect on either side. This is week eight. So we'll have a pretty good sample size of what we've seen offensively from Penn State so far, and we'll have a decent idea. You know, Is there enough firepower here? Can they stretch the field enough? Can they trade points with Ohio State, or do they need to turn it into a brick fight early on? And secondly, if they beat Ohio State, the story writes itself. If they don't, How competitive is it? Because I've gone over this little scenario many times with you that I think Penn State is the most likely. And since I've said this, I've seen some people jump on. There are only so many different takes you can have. I'm not claiming uh, intellectual forgery at all. But I'm saying Penn State is the most likely non-conference champion to make the playoff. Normally, it's an SEC team. This year, I think it's Penn State. So you can't be saying that if you get blown out 42 to 6 or something like that. So you got to make it competitive even if you lose. All right, the very next week, we're going down to Jacksonville. This is Georgia versus Florida. I cannot convey to you in strong enough terms how toxic things will turn, how angst-ridden things will turn in the losing fan base of this game. Doesn't matter. Now, if you're outside of the rivalry and you're just an innocent bystander, it's kind of fun to watch. But believe me, I had some pushback on this from some Florida folks, but I believe I understand the Florida fan base enough to know they're all in. They all think they're going to win the East. A lot of other people agree with them. If they can't clear this hurdle again, if they try again to clear that that red and black hurdle and they fall on their face, and they haven't been embarrassed, but they haven't gotten the job done. If they fall on their face again, 
knowing full well, as they think they do, that they've got several advantages over Georgia now that they normally don't have, and they're just left, you know, kind of relegated to maybe a New Year's Six Bowl if some other teams make room for us. That's not going to be good enough for Florida this year. So that's on one side. On the other side, uh, no one in Athens, Georgia, and beyond is ready to take a step back. Losing to Florida to them would be a step back. Like In their mind, they've distanced themselves from having to worry about that. In the hierarchy of the SEC East, it's them. We're parked at the top, and the only way that we have to go is up. And there's only one more step that we can take up, and that's winning a national championship. Well, all of a sudden, that gets derailed, potentially, if you lose this one. So, as I said, this one, it's sort of a sadistic way to think about it, but I'm excited to watch that one just as much for what it's like for the losing program exiting that week as I am for the winning program. Is that bad? Is that wrong? It's probably wrong. Well, let's move on. Notre Dame, never let it be said. We don't talk about the Irish a lot here. They, in our final game here, are featured a second time. Notre Dame welcomes in Clemson. That is a week 10 game. Yeah, Notre Dame gets another shot. For Notre Dame, it's like you play Alabama eight years ago and people are still talking about it. And then you played Clemson in a semifinal game a few years ago. And then you got Georgia last year on the road. But because you don't have a schedule load, like you don't play in the SEC West, so you don't get an annual chance to atone for this stuff necessarily, unless you make the playoff every year, this is another shot for them. They were competitive at Georgia last year. Well, this is another shot. And they get them at home. Can you imagine for a second? No one's thinking about this. Everyone thinks Clemson's going to win this game. Can you imagine if Brian Kelly were to pull that game off? Let me tell you what it does. First off, it may knock Clemson out of the playoff. That's first. Secondly, it's obviously thrusting Notre Dame right into the playoff conversation if they're not already there. But any time previously that Notre Dame's been in the playoff conversation, think about what it's been. What it's been is, uh, if we're going to make it, I hope we get Notre Dame in the first round. Like Remember a couple of years ago, the, the big beef that Alabama folks had was, how come Clemson gets to play Notre Dame and we have to play Oklahoma when we're the number one seed. I mean, like people were fighting to be able to play them. Well, all of a sudden, if uh, Notre Dame beats Clemson, obviously they were a caliber of team good enough to beat Clemson if they pull it off. Then all of a sudden, I wonder what their prospects look like for the playoff. I wonder if everyone's quite as anxious to play against them. I mean, how has the game gone? Have they pulled it off with a plus four turnover margin? Did they play him straight up and just knock him back? I mean, how did they pull this game off? Was there injury somewhere that was very significant for Clemson? Or does Clemson go in there and win 34 to 17? So those are the games that I picked. Uh, there are obviously, obviously more big games. Like, for instance, who wouldn't want to be in Eugene, Oregon in week two for Ohio State at Oregon? I couldn't go there because I was already in Baton Rouge. See, this is what's kind of aggravating. Like that week, for instance, that uh, Clemson plays Notre Dame. I mean, that's also LSU-Alabama week. I, I ask every year. I don't ask for much. I don't even ask for multiple shirts. I just wear the same one. But in exchange for having a very limited wardrobe, why can't you guys just let me make the schedule? I, I don't think it's too much to ask. We move on. Let's go to the SEC West. Moods, 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 moods. It's time to talk moods. We did this last year when I was independent got really good traffic, and got really good feedback. See, because here's what happens. Here's how a fan base is constructed, typically. I call it the 80-20 rule. 
but it's really like the 10-80-10 rule. Let's call it that. So the 10-80-10 rule is like this. You've got on either side of a fan base, a fringe 10% that are ultra optimistic. I'm talking about like eternally optimistic. And then on the other side of the snake down here, you've got the 10% that are forever pessimistic. These would be like your Georgia fans who are worried that they're going to lose to the Citadel. So cut both ends off the snake. Those are the people you probably hear the most from because the fringe are the most vocal. The 80% are the silent majority, but you don't hear from them as much. So maybe nationally, when you see headlines and when you see predictions and when you see people's quote-unquote takes on a program, they're just parroting the fringe. But the fringe is not the rule. The fringe is the exception. If you are amongst these people, if you are amongst fans, which I am 24-7, look at that, 365, then I know how you actually think. I talk to hundreds of you per week, so I know what you're thinking. And therefore, I find us to be pretty well equipped to do the mood tracker. The mood tracker is essentially, we're going to take programs from the SEC West right now. I'm going to tell you what the maybe silent majority, those 80 percenters, what they're thinking about the program right now. Let's start with LSU. LSU, this is a perfect example of why it's so important to win championships when you get to play for championships. They are in full-on house money mode. I'm not telling you they're not focused on this season, but I'm telling you it is house money mode. If they go nine and three this year, you know what they get to do? Well, they get to watch themselves in the Outback Bowl. And then right after that, later that night, they get to cook up something in the backyard and they get to pour something unspeakable in the glass and they get to pop on that Clemson game again and they get to pop on that Georgia game again. You can watch those replays until the end of time. You can look at that trophy until the end of time. But now it's 2020. So you got that, it's always in your back pocket. Now there are a lot of questions, but the thing about the questions is they're so much easier to swallow when you've got a championship in your back pocket. Think about what would happen if you had all that last year and you came up short. Do you understand how wide the gulf is there? If you had all that last year, generational left, generational right, and you came up short, now you'd be thinking to yourself this year, if we couldn't get it done with all that last year and now they're all gone, I mean, we're back to square one. In reality, they're not back to square one, but it's important to win championships. So LSU folks, they're curious about Miles Brennan. They're very confident in him. Uh, but more specifically, here's where the detachment is. There's a wide detachment inside LSU when you get on the ground with LSU folks versus maybe some national types in the way that they think their program's operating. A lot of people think 2019 was a standalone. It just kind of came in and then it left, and now LSU's back to whatever LSU was before. That's not the case. Uh, there's a lot of residue that will remain because 2019 happened due to a cultural shift inside that program that we've spoken at about ad nauseum on this show. And so, hey, I don't have to promise you I'm right. They don't have to promise you that they're right. You don't have to promise me you're right. The season will bear it out. They don't have to go undefeated to prove it either. Season will bear it out, and I can... Bet pretty much every dollar in my pocket. It may not be much, but I can bet pretty much every dollar in my pocket. Regardless of how LSU season turns out this year, you will not look back in December and say, see, told you LSU's just back to the same old, same old. Don't think that's going to be the case. Now, how about Alabama? What's the mood amongst the 80% for Alabama? I would say that they are tiptoeing with confidence right now because they think they know a lot of things. One of the segments, sometimes we'll do it during the season. One of the segments that we'll do is, I think I know. You know, you got a pretty good feel, but 
Wouldn't quite bet the farm on it just yet. Well, Alabama folks, the 80% there, they think they know some things. They think they know, for example, their defensive struggles last year were not due to any kind of scheme flaw. They weren't necessarily due to offenses evolving and just leaving Alabama defensively in the dust. They were due to injuries. Uh, They were due to a mountain of injuries, and a lot of them at the same positions over and over and over again, the likes of which no program could overcome, even one that recruits at the level that they do. So they think they know that, and the answer there is obvious. Just have a bunch of healthy players and we'll find out. They think they know that these strength and conditioning overhauls are going to work wonders. They think they know that if not now, then in the very near future with Bryce Young, the overall top player in America coming in per the last 24-7 sports recruiting cycle at quarterback, they're set for at least another three years at that position. And so they think everything's fine. I tend to agree with that sentiment, mostly across the board. It's as simple as keeping guys on the field. If that's all true, then it's as simple as keeping guys healthy. That's why I've spent an inordinate amount of time, when we're talking Bama on this show, I've spent an inordinate amount of time talking about their strength and conditioning. That's it. That's Nick Saban had a chance to fire Pete Golding and hire anyone he wanted to. I'm going to talk more about this Sunday night. He didn't. Why do you think he didn't make a move? Because there were no qualified candidates out there? No, it's because as, we, as he told us himself when we talked to him about a month and a half ago, said, man, when we did what was called to do, when we did what we were supposed to do defensively, we were fine. We didn't have enough guys who were capable of doing it. We were playing kids out there. Physically, they may not look like it, but mentally, there were a lot of boys on the field last year for Alabama. A lot of guys that probably in typical Alabama years are seeing mop-up duty and they're seeing special teams reps, but they're not on the field to start the season calling plays at linebacker. Well, that's where Alabama was last year. So tiptoeing with confidence. You know, you walk out on ice. Is it thick enough to hold my weight? I think it is, but let me tiptoe, even though you weigh the same, regardless of how slowly you walk. Down the road at Auburn, boy, it's, you know, I, I know I told you it's the 10-80-10 rule. Whew, it's like the 20-20-20-20-20 rule. There are a lot of different segments of the Auburn fan base. So I'm going to try and pin it down the best I can here. Uh, I would very, very tentatively refer to the silent majority here as being in show me Gus mode. Show me Gus. Now, I don't think last year was a failure by any stretch of the imagination. They played a really tough schedule. I think they finished nine and four with the bowl loss. The bowl loss probably threw me for a loop as much as anything, but they're in show me Gus mode. And basically it's this. Basically, uh, no, one's, no one's calling hot seat for him because of last year, but what they're saying is, was last year a step in the right direction, or is that about as far as we can go, given who we play every year with the way we currently do things? And I think a lot of them feel that way. They feel like, okay, I mean, we're good right now, but no one's calling us great because we're not great. Can you evolve? Specifically, offensively. Can we evolve? I mean, you're an offensive guy. This is me, the Auburn Nation, talking to Gus Malzahn. Make sense of this for me, coach. You're an offensive guy. Program is supposed to reflect the identity of the head coach, right? Yet defense is what's kept us in the championship hunt over the past several years. Why in the world are you making five times what Kevin Steele makes? That was a little harsh. I apologize. But, I mean, you think about that a little bit? What's been the identity? What's been their calling card? What's the hallmark of Auburn football when they're winning over the last four years? It's been defense. 
So can we evolve a little bit here? Can we have an effective enough offense that you know, doesn't stall after the first 10 or 15 scripted plays? Can we develop a quarterback in-house? Bo Nix had some promising flashes, but he also had some very bad decisions at times. That, this game right here that Colin's showing you against Florida, I was on the field for that one. Ugh. There were some throws that made you go, oh, good, you know, like that one right there. And then there were other throws or maybe throws that should have been made that weren't that made you go, ooh, can we be consistent there? Can we develop our own quarterback instead of always having to get a transfer from somewhere else? Can we retool this offensive line? Can we maintain our status as a shark? You can't afford to just be a big fish in the SEC West. You can afford to be a big fish if you're investing 50% of what we invest, but we're all in. We're not partially in here. So we have fully invested. We do everything you ask us to do. When are you going to do it for us? Now you look from the outside and you say, well, geez, man, I mean, you're competing against Nick Saban and Alabama. They're on an all-time great run. Georgia is on the precipice of a national championship. LSU just won one. I mean, history says Auburn should be an afterthought right now. And in reality, they're not. Like, they're a top 15 program every year. They don't want to hear it. All that's true. They don't want to hear it there. So that's where their mood is. It's their mood. It's not what we think their mood should be. How about Texas A&M? The time has arrived. Time has arrived. You could say this just as easily in the East for Florida as we say it in the West for A&M. There's been patience. You talk about giving what's been asked. This fan base, this, this booster class, this donor class out there, they gave everything and then some that's been asked of them, and they've sat back. They've created a great environment. I would challenge you to find me a better game day atmosphere, even when they're average, than Kyle Field and College Station. One of the reasons, selfishly, I want to see them grow into a top 10, top 5 program is just I want to see what that place is like on a Saturday when they're welcoming LSU or Alabama or Auburn in there, and they have got like a number three or a number four next to their name in the national rankings chart, that'd be a scene. But they've done everything. And so just as much as we were talking identity with Auburn, you know, if I'm an A&M fan, if I'm the silent majority there, I've got patience, but I've had patience. You know, I've given you three years now. So this is your roster. Pretty much every player here, you recruited, and the ones that are here from the previous regime, you obviously like enough to have kept around, or they would have been gone uh, through their volition or maybe through other means. So we've done what we've asked or been asked to do. You got to give it to us now, because we look at their offense, the one they ran at LSU last year, the one that carved us up in our own building when we faced Alabama. Why doesn't ours look that way? You are Jimbo Fisher. You're a quarterback guy. You're an offensive guy. We've got the talent. We've recruited very well, and we appreciate that. We got to get the results. There's no reason whatsoever, three years in and beyond now, where we should be playing the big boys and be double-digit underdogs and then have the result turn out about on par or maybe even worse than what the point spread says it should. Those should be dogfights. Maybe not year one, maybe not year two, but year three, yeah. So your trademark is offense. Your trademark is developing quarterback. And we got one that feels like he's been there about 20 years now. And Kellen Mond, do something with it. It is show me time in College Station for Jimbo Fisher. So that's the uh, mood tracker for the SEC West. We're going to do the SEC East Sunday night. That one's going to be a lot of fun. A whole lot of fun. All right. So Chris on Twitter the other day, let me pull this out. I had to print it off. So we do the Late Kick Extra podcast. Uh, that drops every Wednesday. 
And Chris hit me with something, and I answered this on the podcast, but as is usually the case, about the time I hit stop record, I think to myself, I probably should have gone a little deeper. And on this question, I feel like I should have gone deeper. This is about Ohio State. I'm going to read you. It's a, it's a little bit lengthy, um, but it's about a paragraph. I'm going to read you what Chris sent me. You tell me what you think. I'll tell you what I think. He says, Ohio State every year is mentioned as one of the big dogs in college football, year in, year out. It's interesting to me, though, that they've only won two national titles in the last 20 years. With the way they recruit, the way they develop talent, as evident by the NFL draft, is it time to dig in and maybe talk about how underachieving they've been? I get that winning a title's hard, but with everything from recruiting to NFL guys they've developed, I don't think it's unfair to expect more than two in 20 years, especially when this is a program that for the majority of the time is talked about every year as being a playoff team and a national contender. All right. It's not the first time I've ever heard that. So let me give you my take. Nick Saban has ruined college football for a lot of people. Alabama's ruined college football for a lot of people. Here's how I know. Pretend like Alabama didn't exist for a second. Would anyone think that way? Would anyone be suggesting to you that only two titles in the last 20 years is underachievement if Nick Saban wasn't at Alabama? If they just, let's just drop him from the face of the earth, an average um, eight-win program per year exists where they right now exist. If you didn't have that standard, if you didn't have that example, and I know you do, but if you didn't, if you just removed one thing, changed one thing about the sport, this wouldn't be considered underachievement. One title per decade? Look historically. How many programs have pulled that off on average? You're averaging one title a decade. Historically, you're doing better than like 98% of the sport is. But we do have that example at Alabama, and so that is what everyone is held to right now. You average one title per decade, though. For me, I'll take it. Here's what I care about, though. There is a lot of skill involved in winning a national championship. There's also a little bit of luck involved in winning a national championship. But there's just a lot of skill involved in being a contender every year. You got to get a little bit of luck go your way, the bob play, the bounce of ball play. You got to have some things go your way. But the real skill is having yourself in position every year. Just put yourself within striking distance every year, and it'll happen. It won't happen every year. The stuff Alabama does is not normal. You're not supposed to be able to do that. Put yourself in striking distance every year. So here's what I did. I said, let me go back. 2002, that's where I want to go back. That was their national championship. They won over Miami. Um, I want to read you where they finished in the national rankings each year, starting in 2002, ending in 2019. Here's where they finished. And we're asking, by the way, how many years have they been in contention? How many years has it been within their grasp? How many years have they put themselves in position? Here's where they finished. Number one, number four, number 20, number four, number two, number five, number nine, number five, number five, unranked. Three, 12, one, four, six, five, three, three. That's insane. That is insane. That's getting it done. That is getting it done, and that's putting yourself in position. They've won several conference championships. They've won Rose Bowls. College football is a sport of streaks. This is at least how I think about it. Clemson's on one right now. Bama's been on one, like I said, the likes of which you're not supposed to be able to do for over a decade. But Clemson's a good example right now. Clemson did all the right things. They recruited the right way, and they got the right quarterback, and it doesn't hurt them that they're in a, a very soft 
division and very soft conference, but still, they get it done when it's playoff time too. But it's a game of streaks. This is a sport of streaks. Streaks require an elite head coach, an elite quarterback usually, and an elite roster. Well, they've got all those boxes checked, and they have for a while. They've had all those boxes checked at Ohio State, which puts you in prime position to rattle off one, to, to put up two titles. And you're talking about two titles in 20 years? Ohio State's in a position right now where if they won the next three national championships, that wouldn't be shocking. They, they're great at quarterback now. They're going to be great with the next guy they got coming in. And if the next guy doesn't work out, they'll take one on the transfer market, and they'll be good. So they could double their output of national titles over the span of like 24 months for all we know. They're in position, and they've been in position. So no, no, I don't think in the least Ohio State is overrated, and I don't think in the least they've underachieved. Now, the funny part is I'll even get some pushback from some of my Buckeye viewers on that, but that's only because you have insanely high standards and expectations for your program, and I don't mind that, okay? I'm almost excluding Ohio State folks from this conversation. You're emotionally invested in your program. Um, Chris, I don't know who you pull for. I don't think you told me, but let's just say you're an Arizona State fan and you're just kind of watching from a distance. Uh, if you're sitting there saying, hey, Ohio State, you know, a little bit overrated. No, no, that's, that's a great program. And they've been, it's one thing to have a five-year run of greatness and then you sink back into mediocrity. They've been great for two decades. They're not going anywhere. The Elite 11 is finished. We just had it here in Murfreesboro, just outside Nashville. And I wanted to talk about the Elite 11. A lot of you were talking about this in the comment section. A lot of you were uh, DMing me on Twitter, at Josh, by the way, about this. And I picked out three guys. There were several names that you could choose from. We got a lot of wall-to-wall -wall coverage regarding this event on 24-7 Sports. If you don't know what the Elite 11 is, it's basically just most of the best quarterbacks in the country. And it's a series of events, and then you have the finals, and it's just a bunch of competition. They try and put pressure on guys. They put them in uncomfortable positions. And, it, you know, it's, it's meant to basically weed out the elite guys from the good guys. There aren't any bad guys at this event. But it's the best quarterbacks, usually, in the country. And so I wanted to talk about a few here. And Barton Simmons, our Barton Simmons has done a lot of work on this. Andrew Ivins has done a lot of work. A lot of our guys. Steve Wolfong's done a lot of work on this. But I was reading the takes from Barton and Ivans today. And I was looking, for example, with Ty Thompson, who's committed to Oregon right now. That's a big uh, 6'4", 200-pound kid, well put together. He's a four-star guy. And I look at Oregon, and we always talk about Oregon. Everyone asks, I was asked this week on the Late Kick Extra podcast, hey, what is it that separates Oregon right now from like Clemson or Alabama, being up there every year with them? Well, it's quarterback. It's offense and it's quarterback. Uh, you'll see defensively, this year and from now on, defense is not going to be an issue for Oregon. They're stacked. They are very excited about that. It's what are you going to have at quarterback? I mean, you may be good enough to win the Pac-12. What do you have? Can you go shot for shot? Or does it look like when Georgia played LSU last year and they got on the same field with an elite top-notch offense, they're good defensively. They just couldn't keep up. So that's the separation with Oregon right now. Well, why is this important? Because Ty Thompson is committed to Oregon. I want to read you something Barton Simmons said. Just a couple of months into 17 years old, he's already a very imposing figure. He can power it through cutting wind, make every throw. He's also very athletic. So we've got true dual threat capability here. Now, this event is not really designed to feature that. But Barton continues, the Oregon commit is still an upside player more than anything else, but the tools he put on display in Tennessee will catapult him into new company. So you're talking about one of the bona fide 
top five or so quarterbacks in America here. That's the caliber that you have going to Oregon. Ivans said about Ty Thompson, there's one quarterback that's a lock to move up in our rankings based on his performance. It's Ty Thompson, the type of prospect that seems to be getting better and better each time we see him, which is exactly what you're supposed to do in the high school setting. I'll tell you another one that really stood out to me, and that was Brock Vandergriff. Now, this is a guy for maybe some different reasons that I've had to focus on. He's a five-star guy, but he's, he plays small-time competition in Georgia. Doesn't necessarily matter. You could be the greatest quarterback in the history of the game and play at a middle school. If you're great, you're great. But some people usually have questions when you're watching the film, and you've also had an injury here, a leg injury. So just some questions that have lingered in some people's minds about Brock Vandergrift. Now, you talk to Rusty Manziel, who works for the uh, Dogs 24-7 site, and just covers Georgia like nobody's business, and the state of Georgia too, like nobody's business. He's adamant, like this dude's skills translate no matter what level you're playing at. Well, at this event, he validated a lot of that. So this is Barton on Brock Vandergriff. This is a Georgia commit. Think about what separated Georgia in some close games against big competition. The most impressive showcase, this is Barton talking, the most impressive showcase for Vandergriff was the Wednesday accuracy workout that really wore some of the other quarterbacks down. His conditioning and accuracy won the Georgia commit the event and further validated he needs to continue to be on that short list for number one quarterback candidates. That is our director of recruiting telling you this may be the best quarterback in the country. As for Andrew Ivins, he described Brock Vandergriff's week like so. Crisp mechanics, quick release. He looked elite in his first outing on a national stage since injuring his fibula. So, you got small-time competition he's playing against. You got injury concerns. Didn't matter. He came in here this week, and this is all about competition. Validated a lot of the things that people suspect about him. They just want to check those boxes with their own eyeballs. And then the other one, and I've talked about this kid several times, J.J. McCarthy, who was in Illinois. I think he's transferred to IMG now, but he is the five-star Michigan commit, 6'2", about 195. Uh, this is a guy that bears a lot of watching, a lot of watching, because if they get the right quarterback up there and Josh Gaddis is indeed the right offensive coordinator, you got potentially a new elite program at Michigan. And it didn't happen in year one, two, or three for Harbaugh. Maybe it happens in year five, six, seven, eight. Uh, Barton on J.J. McCarthy. He was consistent and precise on both Monday and Tuesday, showcasing some high-level throws. He has the tools and the makeup of someone that can shine at the power five level. So I didn't, this is my interpretation, I didn't take the feedback on McCarthy to be quite on the level as some of those other guys, but in the same conversation now, and hopefully all these dudes have a senior year to play. And if JJ McCarthy, for example, plays at IMG, no one gets worse playing at IMG. A lot of folks get better playing down there. That's the best of the best in the country when it comes to high school. So those names are specific takeaways that I had. And I would encourage you the quarterback is the name of the game today, and it will be for the foreseeable future. Hit up 24-7 Sports. There'll be a lot of coverage today. There already has been. Uh, we've got coverage from that event stretching into next week. I know Steve Wolfong will probably talk to some guys, and you'll have a lot more. And that's the kind of stuff, if I direct you to read something, I think it's worth it. And I think that that coverage is worth it. All right, listen, I got to drive like six hours tonight, so I got a long way to go. The Late Kick Extra podcast is available for you from this week. You guys have given us five-star reviews, and we so appreciate it. Those written reviews and five-star reviews, please keep giving us those. Please subscribe to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. I had an update for you. So last, going into last week, 88.4% of our viewership 
was from unsubscribed viewers. Well, this week it was down to 85%, which means, hey, we had some people subscribe to the channel. That's one of those good old fashioned calls to action. They still work just as good today as they did in the Stone Ages. So yeah, please subscribe to the channel. We just bring you a whole bunch of content we think you'll like, and we listen to you. Imagine that. Imagine a major media company that listens to the fans and just gives them what they want instead of what the 14 or 15 people here think you want. That's how we try and run things. So thank you for watching tonight. You guys have a great 4th of July. Stay safe. Stay, don't do anything with fireworks on July 4th that you wouldn't do on September 18th. General rule of thumb is what Grandma Pate always used to tell me. You guys have a great weekend. I'm about to hit the road for Director Colin, for Aaron, for Tani. You guys have a great weekend. God bless.